0: What does CHENG stand for? A CHENG is a combination of chief and engineer. So The chief engineer role gets shortened to CHENG. The CHENG roles are generally um, technical, strong background individuals uh, who have moved into a leadership position, and so they are guiding our technical workforce in how we execute our technical work at Crane. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Exploring NSWC Crane podcast. This is Cheng Chat. I'm your host, Lori Zipes. I'm the Command Chief Engineer, or Chang, at Crane. With me today is Mr. Tom Talbert, who serves as our Cheng in our Expeditionary EW Division, Electronic Warfare Division, but he also now has moved on to a special task supporting an upcoming event. We're going to get into that a little bit later. So, Tom, welcome. Thank you. You were one of the first people I met when I came to Crane, and uh, I had joined in, into that same division as a cyber uh, subject matter expert, Cr- Chang, Uh it was really great working with you. So I'm super happy to have you here today. Get caught up in, on what you've been up to, uh, but let's start with kind of uh, your role as the Chang in that division, what your career path that led you to there, and then if you just want to roll right into what your current efforts are uh, with the event that I mentioned, then please do.
1: Sure, sure. I'd love to. So. My background is very diverse. Uh, when I started Crane as an electrical engineer, I'd had some technical work that I did that, you know, notoriously for the government were paper pushers. And that's kind of where I went into. And so um, the technology back in the day that I became the expert on, and I'm going to date myself a little bit here, was magnetic tape recorders. <laughs> uh-huh. And so they're no longer around. So, But uh, I was working with a system that was designed and built in the 60s we were not able to upgrade that technology until the early 2000s. And there was a company in Germany that finally built a MUX box that could do the data recording that that one system could do, and the variants thereof. And they were on surface ships, airplanes, the whole nine yards. So that was my career started. Uh, From there, I went on and started working with – that led into me being the Tactical Embedded Computer Resources I was a equipment managers with a label they gave us back then because it was unheard of for a field activity to have a APM position. So they gave us that. But basically we were in charge of systems going on board new construction ships, we were in charge of the production contracts. Uh, the depots that were repairing them and the whole nine yards. So I did that for a few years. From there, I uh, got back a little bit closer to the bench because I wanted to get back into more technical, jumped back into some of the recorders that were out there because I, in that tactical embedded computer resources thing, I was in charge of data storage, data capacity. So think of mag tape drives, also disk drives and all those sorts of things. So I got back into the recorder world, uh, made myself a home down an airborne electronic attack, was there for several years. Um, got down there and started looking at the 400 hertz power electronics and decided that maybe I was going to go back into task lead. So I, I got out of the technical, went into task lead. We developed a few test systems. So I was there between the, uh, when the EA6B was sunsetting and then the EA18G was just coming on. So that's when I met James, so when he came in there worked there for a few years. I became the TPM. Uh, at the time, There was myself and Brian Ackerman, and we were the two largest pens on base. I um, don't think the workload represented that, but it's just the way the numbers fell out. Um, from there on, um, I got tapped to be the ERP project systems leader. Oh, wow. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> it,
1: it, it was a fun few years. I remember that transition, yes. Yes, yeah, so and it, w- our instruction was Do what you need to do, but don't try to be the best. And the people here at Crane, their mentality of doing what's best for the warfighter shines more and more in projects like that. Because, yes, we're not going to try to be the best, but our natural instincts are just to do the best job we can possibly do. And believe it or not, of of the 11 warfare centers that implemented ERP at that point in time, we were one of the top ones with the less problems than any of the rest of the warfare centers. So we did a good job even though that may not have been exactly our what we were told, but so that did that, um and in order to get out of that I did a six month stint at Marine Corps headquarters down in Quantico. Oh
0: interesting.
1: Yeah, so I had to do that and worked with the general down there to help him justify his budget submission. So I had a core team down there that I worked with to help do that. Um from then I got a branch manager job in the electronic you know, expeditionary electronic warfare systems division, which is when you came yep. in, mm-hmm. so and from that that branch manager position, um, then I had wrote on and was selected to be the chief engineer for that group. That's my career. So that's how Sorry. you got there. That's, that's how great. I got there. A, yes,
0: it is a very classic Chang story, in my perspective, right? The, of having done a variety of different things, and sometimes a little stint kind of on the management organizational side, and then coming back to the technical. So, uh, so yeah, fantastic. Makes perfect sense.
1: Yeah, and it's so for the the Cheng position, being a mentor is a key part of that. And one of the things that I tell a lot of the people that come in, especially the new hires, you know, you come in, you're coming into a new job. At first, you're excited. After a while, a lot of times, you know, you get burnt out. You don't want to do it anymore. My comment to them is you don't have to leave Crane. You know, it's a huge organization. Fundamentally, I've changed my job at least four times Uh since I've been here. Uh Um, And so in and out of technical, get a feel for what you like. I will tell you that, being back into the chain role was a whole lot of fun because, uh, to James's comments last
0: on the Possession, last podcast, yeah,
1: yeah um, talking about how technical you kind of have to be. I always think of myself so when I look at you your MIT background and some of the other Chang and and how deep and how smart they are. I'm like, that's not me. I'm a mile wide and about an inch deep. And oh, that's I don't it. I not
0: about that. I'm going to argue with you on that one. You've got some <laughs> definite expertise, Tom, but.
1: But you have to understand some of these new new technologies and you start looking at some of those things. So um, when you start looking at some of those technologies coming up and getting the idea, how can we integrate that? How can we take advantage of that to not only it assist the warfighter to have a better opportunity to survive whatever it is they're trying to do but also to come up with maybe better ways of doing what we're doing so you know it it's it's that whole gamut so so that to me is in that breadth of experience allows me to talk with some authority on what you can do here at Crane without leaving the base. Absolutely. You know, yeah, just,
0: completely true. And you haven't even like moved. We've had some of the other folks that I've interviewed have gone across departments and things as well, right? So you've always kind of been focused generally with with Spectrum Department, right? And so there's whole different worlds of of work of, of warfare domains and technologies, and it's it's mind boggling, right?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now I will tell you, part of my having that breadth of experience means I've been here for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can relate. <laughs> So I, I can't really tell you back in the day when Crane before we reorganized and got the structure in right now, where I was at was still in a fleet forward position. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we mm-hmm. were looking it was called the Fleet Support Department. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to focus, you know, what's going on with the fleet. But even with that, there were pieces and parts. So my background back in the day, we I worked with a group where we were trying to transition primes on a main on a major system within the Aegis ships and I don't know what the original prime did to upset the program office they did something we won't get into that but we got charged with keeping track of the configuration of that system down to the piece part level so that process that tasking actually evolved into IPDM that we use today
0: interesting
1: yeah so the, huh. the people that started that uh-huh. i worked with them okay you know so some of the systems some of the backgrounds and how they became where they were also gives me that eye-opening that understanding that these are tools
0: yep and, and make our think, job easier yeah, yeah
1: they, they make our job easier but we have to understand the tools so that we apply them correctly so when you're mentoring young young kids sorry guys uh, when you're when, young, when young, you, employees. young employees <laughs> yes feel like kids to us, they but. do uh, some of them are younger than my children yep. so sorry <laughs> but when you're mentoring them and they're getting told to use this system or that system and you've got to do this got to do that the first thing I say take a step back what is your you're trying to accomplish and remember these are tools you've got a tool set so the, the le- electronic tool set for the engineering group. Once again it's a tool set pick the right tool you don't want to drive a screw in with a hammer you have to use a screwdriver so it's those type of scenarios and that's where that background has helped me and from the chief engineer position I think it's really been beneficial to help because we've had twenty six to thirty new hires in the last couple of years so just in your group. Yeah, yeah just in that's my a group lot. Yeah. yeah yeah so and and it's been it's been a fun ride it's been really good um, mentoring them um, also believe it or not mentoring in some of the new hire new newly hired branch managers mm-hmm, because right. most, most of them are fairly young. That's a once big again. step. Yes. Yeah,
0: and it's a different perspective. It is. Yeah. It is.
1: So, you know, once again, trying to help them out, you know, trying to not overstep my bounds from mm-hmm. a, from a organizational standpoint, but it's been, so at that, Job was really fun.
0: Yeah, that's uh, so, so. I'll interject something. Cause a couple of things that, that you said that I really like. You know, so so sort of the passion for the technology, right, is something that you see a lot in in the technical workforce and the folks that gravitate towards the chang positions, right. Really having a passion for learning the new technologies and how how can we leverage those, right, to do cool stuff you said it, right, both for the warfighter and then just helping us work smartly, right? Like so, work smarter, not harder is a Navy phrase, right? And so absolutely all of that. Um, and then I love uh your comment about, you know, working with the fleet. And that's something that, as I reflect back on my career, part of my, one of my most favorite times was when I was working with some um, equipment that was directly fleet support, right? That is so rewarding. And I think for people that come into work for the Navy, working for the government, the mission is part of what keeps us here, even though you could make more money outside the fence line, right? But there's something about the mission that is really very powerful and for me that phase of my career when I was out on the ships and the subs or not on the subs literally but near the subs right with with the with some of the equipment they were using it's just so rewarding right because in general the the sailors are they're happy to see you there because you're bringing them something better uh and then just realizing seeing firsthand what they deal with really just inspires you as to why we need to be doing the best we possibly can for them. And that's another thing that um, that I think is really important for our newer hires to have that opportunity to work that kind of, kind of effort at some point so that you do see firsthand that and it, and it can really get you sort of in, engaged and inspired. So that might be kind of a nice segue to talk about um what you're coming up what you're focusing on mostly now because it is an experiment uh that has to do with the technologies you've worked with and that's gonna tie back to warfighter stuff. So if this is a good time maybe move into talking about that a little bit.
1: Absolutely. I think we can do that. My job as Chang has transitioned. I am now the Thor's Hammer engineering lead. As the Thor's Hammer engineering lead, let me bring background on what Thor's Hammer is.
0: Yeah. So a quick comment, because we actually did, there was a podcast probably a year ago now with yes. Michael Perry yes. um, that Sandy did with him. And so any of our listeners who want to know a lot more can go and try to find that podcast from a while back. But but yeah, give us the quick rundown on what it is and then talk about your role there.
1: Absolutely. So Thor's Hammer is a biennial international event. It's sponsored through NATO. Um, it has NATO, non-NATO, and five ICE countries. And what we do, it started out as a counter IED. So if you think of the division that I work in, crew is the label that we put on it, but it's the counter IED, the counter roadside bomb mission. So what we do is for those roadside bombs that are electronically activated. So in other words, think of somebody setting off a distance away. They're waiting for a target to come by and they press whatever electronic means they have in their hands to detonate that bomb. Our job is to stop that. And that's what we do. And over the years, we've gotten very effective about that. The United States has gotten very effective with that means. The United States has a lot of resources to put at those type of things. When we look at NATO, some of those countries do not have those resources, but they still have the same force protection requirement on them, Um, which, once again, for the crew world, that is one of the nice things about it. When I do my job and do my job correctly, it's hard to know because nobody dies. And so if nothing happens, everybody's like, well, is it because you guys did a great job or is it because there just wasn't anything there? Well, we've learned that it's because we're doing a good job Um, and we've got some facts that we can throw into that. But we're also bringing into this world counter-UAS. So one of the things we're trying to drive our NATO allies with is to look at total force protection. And if you're in a convoy and you're heading out the gate, and you come under attack, not only are you are going to have these IEDs set in at the side of the roads, but now, if you look at what's going on in Ukraine and elsewhere in the world, you're going to have these UASs that are going to come, and depending on the size, they're not going to drive, drop a huge thing, but it still can be very damaging and, and can kill people. So if you're going to be forced protection, you got to look at those things, too. So what we're doing is we're bringing this community together so that if we get deployed together, we can be effective in our mission and saving people's lives. So the first few events that happened back in 2015, 2017, and even into 2019 really evolved just the counter IED mission. Um, and the biggest aspect was, can we be compatible? And so the answers that they were coming to is that on some of the older technologies, which is where the tech, new technologies come into, some of the older technologies could not be compatible. And what that means is they would step on each other, and if you think of fratricide in the typical sense, that's usually when one of our people kills one of our coalition partners, what was happening is our system was killing their system or vice versa, and we were not stopping the threat from going through. So the bomb could still detonate, and so we weren't protecting each other, just simply because we had our systems on in the same area. Right. So we learned standoff distances. We learned where to place people to make that happen. And as time has gone on, we've also increased the technology where a lot of these systems now today have become software-defined radios. And with these software-defined radios, there's become new techniques that we can implement that allow us to be compatible. And so we test these at Thor's Hammer. And so the biggest thing we're doing at Thor's Hammer is that compatibility piece. Can we work together in a coalition environment? The other thing that we're looking at is how effective we are. In 2022, we had a year off because of COVID. But in 2022, we integrated counter-UAS for the first time. And the U.S. Navy here at Crane is the lead on that part of it. Um, So what we have done with that is we've exposed them to how you do counter-UAS because it's not as intuitive. There are certain technologies that don't behave the same. And so you have to learn those type of things. You can get in the lab and you can do so much. But then you got to get out and you got to actually test it.
0: Yeah, it strikes me as way more complex. I mean, you were talking with the roadside bombs. It's like it's a click and it goes. It's very simple communication. Yes. But when you're talking about UAS's unmanned aerial systems, by the way, for yes. those of you who Sorry. may not <laughs> know that, I know we get into this and we forget and I'm thinking who our listeners might be, right? So unmanned aerial systems is what we're talking about. And and it's not just a single command, right? Somebody's guiding it. Somebody's maybe giving it commands. And so there's all kinds of other things that we both could do and need to do to make sure that those don't become something that's harmful to our, to our troops, right? And to your yes. comment about frequencies and all sorts of different details of the technologies that make it more more difficult for us to have multiple players in the arena right and trying to ultimately get what we need to have happen which is to keep everybody safe so so a really complex kind of task right absolutely yeah. absolutely
1: yeah. and and of course you know in 2024 we're hosting it and we're making it a whole lot
0: more complex <laughs> Kind of set the bar high right absolutely <laughs> but absolutely. that's how but but it's realistic right because we have to do those experiments to figure it out because you can you can only analyze so much right with as much as we try to rely on our science and our math and simulations and things like that the real world is the real world and when it's a very complex situation like that we have to do these experiments and events to really learn um, what's going to happen and test things out absolutely so it's it's impressive and it's going to be a great um I'm, I'm cool. think it's going to be a cool event and I don't envy what you have to think about right to so make sure it goes smoothly and well, gonna, but it's gonna fun
1: it. I mean we talked about the technology and and how we we as an engineer enjoy that technology and that challenge that comes along with it. So we're having the, the 2024 split into two different areas. We're going to have Camp Atterbury, and if you think of Camp Atterbury and what it is, we're setting that test facility up to be almost identical to the previous test events. We're doing the same type of testing the same way, and it's a standardized test, so you can actually take measurements and understand how your systems is performing. Uh, you eliminate as many variables as possible we're then going down to Muscatatuck. And in Muscatatuck is where I think the fun is going to be. And that's from a purely nerdy engineering standpoint. Um, Because what we're going to do is we are going to integrate Counter-ID and Counter-UAS and test at the same time, which has never been done in an urban environment, which is not pristine, um, very challenging, Uh, The fun comes in on the actual testing side of it, and the reporting back of the information, how well you did, it's never been done. So we're now creating a system that can collect this information, hopefully provide real-time feedback, because that's what the nations need when they're going through the test but also collect the data so that we can go back into the labs later Mm -hmm. on and actually look at it and say, yeah, here's here's what happened. Yeah, Yeah,
0: That's a treasure trove, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. So,
1: so from a technology standpoint, this is where it gets exciting because Mm -hmm. you start looking at, you know, historically speaking, a lot of these technologies existed in the stoke pipes and, Ceramic cylinders, I think, is what I, it was. Ceramic cylinders of yes, excellence, yes. thats what John Schofield called yes, it. Yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> love that. Yeah, I do too. And so, but when you look at what technology is doing today, like software-defined radios, they're—they're they're not really. It's not really a new technology. It's a merger of existing technologies, and it's bringing them together. And so, when you look at that, and you try to figure out the other side of that coin is how do I test that? How do I ensure that when I put something out with the fleet or with a soldier, it's going to do what it needs to do? And testing becomes pretty critical in that part of it. So and that's the other flip side and that that is why I'm still here today. <laughs> <laughs> still excited. And still excited, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome.